This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. We're still thinking about that victory in the midterms where the Democrats won by the largest popular vote margin for either party in history was larger than the Watergate midterm after Nixon resigned in 1974. That was 44 years ago. But there was a deeper and more significant victory hidden behind those numbers. Kai Wright will explain. Also, last week, the White House, the Trump White House, released a major scientific report on climate change with the darkest warnings to date about the consequences of climate change for the economy of the United States. Tom Athanasiu will comment. But first, Michelle Obama. Her book, Becoming, is out now. For that, we turn to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and also a scholar-in-residence at the Center for the Study of Michelle Obama. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The LA Times, The Washington Post, and lots more. She's best known for her work on Haiti, including the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, the Obamas got a $65 million advance for a book by each of them. Now hers is out. She's doing a superstar book tour here in L.A. where we record our show. Her book event was not at a bookstore, but at the Forum in Inglewood, where the Lakers used to play. It has 17,000 seats. It was sold out for her event. She has similar venues in other cities. Not your typical author appearance. I heard that some of the seats were going for $3,000. That's the scalper prices. Scalper prices are still prices. Well, we're interested in what the book has to say about politics because hers were a bit mysterious, maybe more complicated than she let on. She was part of two presidential campaigns, a decade at the top of American politics. And of course, the Republicans went after her. Starting in 2008, with all the fury and all the lies they could launch, she reminds us about that at the very beginning of her book. Yeah, she, she says she wants to take apart the three words, angry black woman, which is the worst thing that she is for those people. Um, and she believes that it's her blackness and her femininity that were the real targets of the people who were detracting from her stature when she was campaigning with her husband. Also, while Barack Obama, as she often says, was kind of a unicorn and a hybrid and a very different kind of person with Kenyan ancestry and, and just a, a, ver a very strange being, she herself was 
an American-born black American, and that's why she feels a lot of the hatred came down on her. We look to Michelle's book to learn what she has to say about her real politics. In her story about growing up, it's important to her, as you've said, that she's from Chicago's South Side, a legendary black neighborhood in America, maybe second only to Harlem. And in high school, she was best friends with Jesse Jackson's daughter around their house a lot as Jesse was preparing to run for president. What does Michelle have to say about being in the center of black militant politics in America in the, in the 80s? She wasn't that into it. She says it was kind of fun and interesting, and there were sometimes famous people there, and it largely stood in the way of her and her friend Santita Jackson getting to where they wanted to go because they were relying on the grown-ups, and the grown-ups would, like, have to stop off at a meeting and then have to stop off at some, you know, place where they picked up food for some rally, and then they wouldn't get to the shoe store in time to catch the sale. She actually says, I liked seeing what they were doing, but, quote, I needed rather desperately to get to the water tower place before the K-Swiss sneaker sale ended. So, I mean, she's portraying herself as a teenage all-American girl, and she wants her readers to empathize with that and to relate to it. She's very concerned with making herself what my students all call relatable rather than high-class first lady with intellectual interests. Or, or someone, even as a teenager, engaged with the political project of black America. And yet she knew very well that her family had decided to stay on the South Side when many people moved out, not just white people, but middle-class black people. She wanted to remain there. Her family wanted to remain there. Her father was a Democratic precinct captain, and he was very involved in Democratic politics. She has to have known more than just when the case swiss sneaker sale was on. And, of course, she went to Princeton because her older brother, Craig Robinson, was already there as a basketball star. She was at Princeton from 81 to 85. She says she had never lived in a white world before. At Princeton, she says she lived mostly in a black student world, hanging around at the Third World Center. The interesting thing to me is that the chapter on Princeton, she says nothing about ideas, courses, books, arguments, even though she minored in African-American studies. I know. It's a really strange thing. She has to have been thinking and growing politically while she was there. Also, the experience of being the only black kid in a classroom or seeing yourself as one of a very tiny minority in such a white bastion as Princeton after having lived on the south side of Chicago has to have been completely disorienting. She talks about it to a degree, and she talks about meeting her roommates and having a white roommate who didn't want to live with her anymore, and she talks about being around her older brother and at the Third World Center. Yes, that's what it was called then. But she doesn't mention, you know, reading Franz Fanon or Marx or any or Malcolm X or, uh, you know, any of the grand figures from African-American writing. In contrast, Obama's book about when he went to Occidental College is all about how opened his eyes to be in black studies and to read Franz Fanon, Malcolm X and W.E.B. Du Bois. This was a transformative experience as he tells his story. Of course, he was a kid from Hawaii who wasn't really African-American at all, as you have said. But still, you wonder if there wasn't more to her intellectual life at Princeton or, or maybe there wasn't. 
She met Barack in 1989. Barack had been a community organizer on the South Side for three years before he decided to go to law school and then came back. I mean, she barely mentions the fact that her uh, husband had been a community organizer for three years in her neighborhood. Yeah, she doesn't seem interested in it at all. She doesn't seem to have really talked to him very much about it, although there are, there's a paragraph here or there about you know, being at a bar and having him talk about community organizing. But it doesn't seem to be the top of her list about things she treasures in him. Probably her most famous statement in the 2008 campaign when, after Obama won the nomination, she said, for the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. We kind of know, or we think we know what she meant, that black man could run for president, huge thing in American history. It was a classic political gaffe when somebody says something true that you're not supposed to say. And after that, we think she was required to keep pretty quiet about what she really thought, but it got her in a lot of trouble. And in the book, she takes this up and says she was just misunderstood. Yes, she says she was misunderstood. She was very proud of her family for having gotten through this election. The country was so nice to them. It was so heartening to be a black person and receive this kind of understanding when for so long one had feared that one might not. All of these things, but never really addressing why that kind of a statement would be so incendiary to so many. But what interested me, too, is that afterwards, she kind of went to Barack and said, I'm so sorry, I never realized that would be taken in that way. I speak too freely. What should we do? And then, like 20 minutes later, she had a team. <laughs> and she had a personal aide. She had a scheduler. She had a media consultant. She had an airplane. And she had hair and makeup on the plane. <laughs> so that's what fixed Michelle Obama and stopped her, really, from speaking in that way. And uh, what she said, her media consultant told her, was to remember the things I most enjoyed talking about. And what did that turn out to be? Well, that turned out to be my love for my husband and my kids, my connection to working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. I guess the Chicago's a little, a little incendiary. <laughs> Only a little. No, but what's interesting about that is what she was told by her media consultant was essentially assume the role of the first lady already. Before your first lady, act like a first lady. Concern yourself with women's problems, women's things, and your husband and your children, and stop talking about, you know, politics. And in fact, there's very little about the other parts of the campaigns, the people they're running against, how they get votes, how they don't get votes. She talks about this great post, uh, first time I've been proud of my country. Uh, after that, her first appearance on The View, where she sat around with the usual suspects. And she says, quote, talking about attacks against me, yes, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> it's just, it hurts me to, to read that. And then she says, and people started buying the black and white dress that I was wearing on the show. I was having an impact. In the 2016 campaign, she was back on the road campaigning now for Hillary and against Trump. You know, I think a lot of us think her greatest moment came in the speech she gave right after Trump's Access Hollywood pussy grabbing tape. Let's listen to a little bit of it. 
This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, <laughs> it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this and I feel it so personally. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel, it's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts, it, it, it hurts. It's a great speech, it's a political speech. Uh, she has the tremor in the voice, the tremor in the voice is not fake. And uh, and she has two girls. And, you know, I was making fun just now about her saying the things I really care about are only my girls and my husband and my pantyhose. But she cares about how her girls grow up in America. And this was horrifying to her. And to see a candidate like that running, I don't want to get a tremor in my voice, <laughs> but against a woman of really a reasonable stature, political stature, and able to talk like that. And indeed, Michelle was right. It was swept under the rug, essentially. It may come back to haunt him, but... The New York Times the next day, commenting on that speech, called her, quote, the most outspoken first lady in modern history, close quote. What does she say about this in the book? She describes this very momentous thing in one paragraph, as if she's, uh, as if she's not so proud of it. And she should be really proud of it. Not only was it a great speech, and no doubt partly at least written by her, but perfectly delivered. And finally comes the bad ending of the whole story. Obama is replaced in the White House by Donald Trump. They did everything they could on the campaign trail to prevent that, and they failed. We wonder, why does she think about this? Why does she think Trump got elected? Why did Hillary lose? Was there anything Obama could have done as president to have made the Democrats stronger in 2016? How does she explain Trump's victory in the book? She says, I'm not a political person, and so I'm not going to attempt an analysis. And that is just a giant cop-out on so many levels, really. First of all, she's a political person. Second of all, She's done an analysis of it. Why isn't she offering that analysis? That's a really important analysis for the American people to hear. But she and the editors of her book have decided not to permit that to be put into print. And at the end, she sums up Barack's accomplishments as president and her own as first lady. Well, there's the vegetable garden, and it's bigger than it ever was, and she's put some new trees in it. There's the... Um, New set of dishware, the Obama presidential dishware that she oversaw. There's the um, campaign for kids healthy eating, crucially important, especially in the black community because of so much eating out at fast food restaurants. And the, the concomitant Let's Move, which is the dancing exercise program that she propagated. 
And what else? That's pretty much it. Programs in the Third World for Girls' Education. So this is not a political book. It's not a book about what she learned about politics or how she learned to do politics or how the Obamas changed politics in America. What kind of book is it? So what I think is that it, it has a carefully crafted uh, demographic target, and that target is women. I think it's women voters, and that she doesn't want to bore us with policy, but they're a political family from Chicago. Those people talk politics like it's Rice Krispies. And all of that is really missing from this book. You know, I wonder, is it possible that Michelle Obama actually is not a political person, that the thing she cares most about is childhood obesity and healthy eating? We would like her to be more political, more of a left-wing Democrat, and maybe she isn't. Whatever politics there are, she is not at a point right now where she wants to discuss that. But I also think that those issues that you talk about, uh, childhood obesity and the let's move uh, idea, are political issues and that she thinks of them that way. It's not like decorating the White House. Well, we're talking here as if now that it's over, she should tell us the real story the of what she really thinks, but maybe it's not over. Well, this was my thought in reading it, that it is such a carefully scrubbed and attended to book. She's left so much politics out. Who does that, really? Who leaves politics out of what they say? Politicians. <laughs> and, and so I thought, she's running for office, and she's kind of clearing the stage. She's getting rid of all the garbage from her past and not bringing any new stuff in. And at the end, she says, I am never running for office, never, never, never. But do I believe that? Not from reading this book. And she's doing a book tour in 15,000-seat arenas. And what else is the purpose of this book? Is it to tell Michelle Obama's story? It's to tell the story of becoming Michelle Obama and onward. And onward. Amy Willens wrote about Michelle Obama for the Washington Post. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, John. We're still thinking about the midterms. The Democrats, you will recall, needed 23 seats to retake the House. They won at least 39, probably 40. They got more than 53% of the vote. That's the largest popular vote margin in history for either party, bigger than the Watergate midterm after Nixon resigned in 1974. That was 44 years ago. But there was a deeper and more significant victory hidden behind those numbers. For comment, we turn to Kai Wright. He's host of WNYC's terrific podcast, The United States of Anxiety. It's now in its third season. He's also head of WNYC's narrative unit, and he's a columnist for The Nation. Kai Wright, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what for you was the real midterm victory. Let's let's start with Georgia, where, of course, Stacey Abrams ran for governor. Well, I mean, there are many, many midterm victories, actually, but I think the one I'm really interested in is what is happening in the South for the Democratic Party. Huge swaths of the South are sort of 
area number one on the list of the places that Democrats as a national party uh, long ago wrote off as, okay, well, that's red territory. We won't invest in actually fostering a debate in those places. We won't invest literally in terms of money and resources, and we won't invest in terms of trying to actually develop candidates and develop uh, the party, the infrastructure there. It's it's a stance that produces the the outcome you would expect, right? Like it remains uh, deeply red territory, despite the fact that there are not only there's demographic change happening in terms of the number of young people and people of color and migrants from around the country that are moving to those places, but also even before the change, this is the blackest part of the country. And so what we saw in this election cycle was, I hope, and I, and I think I, I, I can say without hyperbole, I think it's the beginning of the end of that. Saw um, some races all in different ways, um, from Stacey Gabrams in Georgia to Beto O'Rourke in Texas to Andrew Gillum uh, in Florida, all in their own ways, start to say, nope, there's a party here. There is a progressive movement here, uh, and it deserves representation. But Stacey Abrams... Andrew Gillum and Beto O'Rourke did not win. <laughs> that is correct. But I think there's there's important things to think about in those losses. First off, certainly in Texas and in Georgia, it should have never been a conversation in the first place. So to, to be very clear, these are races that a year ago were in no were not in debate about whether or not they would be Republican seats. And these are places that were nonetheless hard fought. And in Georgia. It has ended only because Stacey Abrams decided not to continue her legal battle. And these are places that took enormous amounts of voter suppression in order for them to even hold their seats. So these became enormously competitive places that were not. But it's not just about the outcome of the election. Part of Stacey Abrams' success was that she ran a statewide campaign. Democrats in Georgia since at least the early 90s have been running very localized campaigns and then saying, well, we want to win Atlanta and we want to run up the vote in places where they have a lot of black people. And we want to try to to, to draw out uh, moderate whites in those exurbs around those cities. And so that informed the kind of candidates that they chose. Um, and it formed the kind of strategy that they chose. That isn't just about whether or not she flipped a given county from red to blue. It's that she made those, she got votes out in those counties. Democrats who had not been engaged now are. And I visited a number of these counties where you have people that are in red places and who were not part of the political conversation, never felt like they were invited into political conversation, and who are now activated and who are now building a party in their county. And that's going to have an impact, not just on who's governor, it's going to have an impact on the county commissions. It's going to have an impact on House seats. It's going to have an impact on the state legislature. The Democrats won something like 12 uh, new seats, 12 seats, picked up something like 12 seats in the Georgia state legislature. So it's not just the governor. It's all the way down the ticket. You start to build a party. And when you do that, you start to change a the state. There was a, a big uh, article in the New York Times on Sunday, page one article. The headline was Across the South. Democrats who speak boldly risk alienating rural white voters. They pointed out that people were talking about Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, and Beto O'Rourke, quote, may have electrified black and progressive white voters, but they had an equal and opposite effect as well. In rural counties, this trio of next-generation Democrats performed worse than Obama did in 2012, close quote. What do you think about that? 
it was it was destined that we would arrive in this debate. This is the debate we went into the campaign with, yes, right? You know, is. I mean, there is a part of the party that says, no, 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 the strategy here has to be that you need to run candidates that appeal to conservative white voters. They would call them moderate white voters. I would call them conservative white voters. You have to run candidates that appeal to those people, and that's the way you're going to win. And baked into that idea is that you take for granted, you presume that the black people and the actual progressives and the and all of the democratic constituencies will just come along with you. So you take those people for granted. So that's first off baked into that is that you've chosen that these people who are your party are the people who you will just assume will come. And so then you will go and pursue, you will build your strategy around, you have to reach these conservative whites. That has proven to be an utter failure. Stacey Abrams got a higher share of the Democratic vote than any than any Democrat since 1998. Four million people voted in a midterm election. Listen, if you pick a fight, yeah, your opponent's going to fight back. It, it, that's a truism, right? If you don't pick a fight, you'll lose. Take Florida, for example. Now that one of the most undertold stories of this election is that somewhere between a million and a million point five people have been re-enfranchised in Florida as a consequence of, of, of the initiative that gave felons their right to vote back. We haven't decided an election in Florida by less than by more than 100,000 votes in a long time. If 10 percent of those people go to the polls, Florida is a different place and, and they are overwhelmingly African-American. And in fact, Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gilliman Betham did have a strategy for appealing to, quote, those people, uh, talk about health care, talk about Medicare for all, talk about raising the minimum wage, the famous bread and butter kitchen table issues, which actually would help poor rural white people in the South. It's true. And, you know, but I, I, and I don't want to I'm not being a Pollyanna here, you know, like the, the reality is. Uh, that white supremacy is a thing, that the Republican Party has mobilized on it very well, that uh, there are huge hunks of the white electorate right now that no matter what piece of policy you're talking to them about, if you are a candidate of color, if you are a Democratic candidate, if you are associated with a part with the Democratic Party that is saying, hey, we believe in pluralism, that you're going to vote against that party. I, that That's true. There's a, there, we know that, right? If, if, if there was ever any confusion about that, Donald Trump has laid that bare. But that is not, it does not logically follow then that you concede to that movement and say, oh, well, okay, well, that's where we're at. They get the power. We have to figure out how to like put ourselves, figure out how to package ourselves for them. No, you have to say, well, we don't believe in that vision of America. And so we need to figure out how we can build a party that doesn't that, that challenges that vision of America. And if that's your starting point versus this sort of consultant-driven how do we win in 2020 thing, then it's a no-brainer that you would run a can- that you would be excited about a campaign like Abrams. On your podcast, The United States of Anxiety, you had a fantastic recent episode before the election. Uh, you found a secret group of women activists in Texas. Tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, this is this is an example of what happens when you start to activate everywhere in the country and in every county of every state. Uh, this is a group of women. Some of them were Democrats. Some of them were moderate Republicans. Uh, some of them were apolitical. Um, we didn't. I never actually met them. Uh, uh, they were. They had to conceal their identity. We were introduced to them through uh, someone who was doing research on, on politics in Texas. They 
lived in a rural county. They were so appalled with the state of the Republican Party that they, they could no longer just go along with it. And they, so they believed in Beto O'Rourke's campaign, but they were terrified of admitting that publicly. Um, they were worried about being ostracized from their, from their faith communities. They were worried about the state of their businesses. Uh, if they were public about that, they were worried about what it would do to some of their personal relationships, including with their spouses, with their husbands. And so they began to literally organize in secret. They would gather in an undisclosed location uh, and they would volunteer. Some of them, the ones we spoke to were the ones, were the handful of them that were comfortable being more open. You know, they still had their names changed for, for the, for the show, uh, but they were willing to talk to us about the work. And, and they expressed this mixture of bravery and fear. There's two things here is that the stakes for people have gotten really, really high for those of us who have been literally targeted by this administration and by the party that it represents, the stakes have gotten very high if you're a person of color, if you're an immigrant, if you're a woman. And so many people are prepared to do things that they never thought that they would do. And the question then for whether you're a movement that is trying to to, to whether we're social movements or whether it's the Democratic Party or another political party, are you going to actually engage with those people in their homes or are you going to write them off? Uh, and that is, that is also the, what, is, what is enraging about uh, a, a, a political analysis that says, oh, you know, forget that county in Texas, forget that county in Georgia. There are people there who are prepared to risk their lives. And you won't you won't risk a few dollars of your political party in order to support them is is disgusting. Kai Wright, his new column for the Nation is titled "What Was the Real Midterm Victory?" Read it at thenation.com. Kai, thanks so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Last week, the White House, that is the Trump White House, released a major scientific report on climate change with the darkest warnings to date about the consequences of climate change for the United States. For comment, we turn to Tom Athanasiu. He's the director of EcoEquity, an activist think tank that argues for emergency climate strategies that protect the poor. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Everybody Knows, Climate Emergency in the New Age of Inequality. And he writes about climate change for the nation. We reached him today in Berkeley. Tom, welcome to the program. Good to be here. This report, it's called the National Climate Assessment, was mandated by Congress, issued by 13 federal agencies, made headlines for its predictions about the effects on the American economy of failing to take significant steps now to slow global warming. Tell us about the report and its conclusions. Well, the report is really important politically, and it's actually a very fine piece of scientific work as well. The reason it's so important politically is that it's made in the USA, so it cannot be denigrated as you know some product of opaque international bureaucracies. And um, uh, contrary to what Mr. Trump has said when he, when he dismissed it as having been based on a worst-case scenario, uh, the report is about half consists of about half simple observation in terms of what's actually happening in various regions of the, of the United States, and then 
half scenario-based analysis uh, that's strongly rooted in, in the current science. The, the so-called worst-case scenario that Trump was referring to is actually a business-as-usual scenario. So this report, it's 1,656 pages long, concludes that what the headline was that climate change could slash up to a tenth of gross domestic product by 2100, more than double the losses of the Great Recession a decade ago. But, of course, economic losses are in some ways not the most important to to us. No, economic losses are hard to understand, particularly when they're projected that far out. And insofar as they reflect what's actually happening in the physical and biological world, well, that's what we ought to really care about, isn't it? But the authors of the report, and I I know one of the principal authors quite well, they knew what they were doing, you know, by by emphasizing the the economic consequences of climate uh, disruption, they hoped to break through some of the ideological defenses which which the elites as well as the 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 ordinary people of this country have have you know built up against dealing with climate change and so so they and to a certain extent it seems that they did it they tried to bury the report by by releasing it in the early afternoon the day after thanksgiving but they didn't succeed in burying it and and probably the, the headline about economic losses had something to do with that. The report said that the impact of climate change, quote, will not be distributed equally. People who are already vulnerable, including lower income and marginalized communities, have lower capacity to prepare for and cope with extreme weather and climate-related events and are expected to experience greater impacts. Uh, the report recommends actions for the most vulnerable populations that would contribute to a more equitable future, close quote. That's the kind of issue that your organization, EcoEquity, has been concerned with. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, that's a great thing about this report, that it's clarity about the the differential impacts between the rich and the poor. With respect to my own work and the work that we do in the international negotiations, the distinction is that rather than simply talking about the differential impacts on the poor, which will be extremely important and extremely severe, we talk about equity as a gateway to high ambition mobilization as well. For example, we're really interested in equity within the international climate regime and how the international climate regime cannot possibly succeed unless it foregrounds distributional justice, international distributional justice and distributional justice within countries. You've mentioned a couple of times the IPCC report. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a group of scientists convened by the United Nations. How does their report compare with this national climate assessment that was mandated by by Congress? Well, first of all, they completely support each other. There's There's no air between the two reports. The politics and framing of the two reports is quite different. 
The, the IPCC report was mandated by the UN climate negotiations really as a consequence of the demands of the mo- more, most vulnerable countries on the planet who rebelled against what they saw as the reification of the two-degree target, which was too dangerous, particularly for small island states and for low-lying countries like Bangladesh that would be very, very, will be very, very, very heavily impacted by rising seas. And when when the IPCC was mandated to do a special report on 1.5 degrees, the 1.5 degree target, you know, there was a terrific amount of skepticism as to whether or not they, the, the IPCC would, would be able to support that target as an achievable goal. And the, the big news about that report was that it, A, is achievable, though tremendous social change will be necessary to, 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 to reach the goal, and also that the traditional, the, the de- developing countries were right. The traditional target of two degrees centigrade is absolutely, unacceptably, terrifically dangerous. The, the, the national climate assessment that just came out has a different scope. It focuses on the United States and on its various economic sectors and on its various regions, and it it uh, it's extremely accessible and and extremely uh, newsworthy in its framing. Like if you live in California and you've been worried about the fires, well, you can go to the to the section of the report on on the West and 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 read about the drying and read about the the changing rainfall patterns and all of the uh, you know and it will it will move you right. And if you're in Florida. You can do the same thing with respect to the rising seas and the porous, porous landmass. So it's it's a different framing, but you know the scientific community is is a global scientific community at this point, and and doesn't necessarily respect the the walls that Mr. Trump would have it put up would have put up. Last question: If we get two degrees of warming instead of one point five. What will the consequences be? Boy, the consequences of two degrees of warming um, would be extreme. Uh, you know, to to uh, to uh, to a first uh, to a first approximation, you know, uh, you know, there would be large areas of desertification and a tremendous number of people suffering from lack of water. There will be many, many more problems with disease vectors that there will be a very, a very uncontrollable amount of sea level rise, enough, enough to inundate enough of, of the coastal cities on the planet that it will really put a lot of people on the move. It will probably irreversibly destabilize the West Antarctic ice sheet and probably mobilize a lot of fossil methane, which is in the, the particularly in the the northern forests. And and I think I think the key thing to say here is, though it's hard to say and and hard to to really take in, is that we're now discovering that the two degree target that was once considered to be safe is actually probably, two degrees is probably where we're going to start finding 
the tipping points and the tipping cascades. And it, this is not to say that we are doomed. We are not doomed. But it, the situation is extremely serious, and we have to not go there. We have to stabilize the climate system before it gets to two degrees. Tom Athanasiu, he writes about climate for the nation. Read him at thenation.com. Tom, thanks so much for talking with us today. Very good. Thank you very much. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.